Thank you so much. Give that hand clap to the Lord. You may be seated. I am in the very unenviable position to, uh, sometimes people will say, boy, I wish I was up there. I doubt if that's happening right now. Of all this emotional gush that has happened in our lives and stirring of God's spirit in our hearts, uh, there's not much meat left on the bone. Um, after the kings of the jungle have ripped and torn their fair share off and are off digesting their part lot and the uh, now the scavengers come in might be a little piece of meat between the third and fourth vertebrae and with their hook beak they may reach in and get a little something you know because the jackals have carried off the ears and the tail and the skin and the hyenas have crushed the skull and ate the marrow out of the bone and so we're not left with a lot of meat <clears throat> but be that as it may it is my appointment to be able to try to minister to you and I know it is 1244 in case you're keeping track I'm sure you are I'm going to read a couple of verses of scripture for you in the book of 1 Samuel 15th chapter and uh Verse 35 in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. A couple of verses of Scripture. They've already been read. I'm just going to read them again. So there's not a lot of meat left on these bones. But And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. 1 Samuel 16 and 1. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long will thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. I will endeavor to administer today on the subject of an empty horn. Thank you, Lord, for your word today. God, for it's forever settled in heaven. We may debate, we may contend, we may wrestle with it, dear God, but I know it's a settled word, and I thank you for that. And give us a touch from heaven today that we might be able to just break a little bread of life, feed a hungry soul. For these things, we are thankful and grateful. I will give you all the honor. In the precious, lovely, altogether lovely, magnificent, unlike any other name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm interested in, in, in not just my text that I've read, but I'm, I'm interested in the context. Uh, it's, it's the part that surrounds a passage that really determines what its meaning is. Um, context is Latin for to join together by weaving or to plait by overlapping. And so not all times is context uh, 
absolutely vital, but you can preach out of Proverbs. There are a lot of individual verses that will stand together, but generally speaking, for my, for my ministry at least, context is always important. Uh, I shouldn't say always, 99% of the time it's important uh, because it, it's, it's, it's the way I preach. I, I, kind of, I kind of weave a story. And you can't weave with only one strand. You've got to have more than one strand. And so in order to weave, you need several strands to weave together to try to make something out of it, try to create a pattern, you understand, to try to, to, try to combine and interlace and, 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 and wind it in and wind it out and over and under and take the separate elements and try to create something whole out of it. Like a woman would take the long hair of her daughter and break it into pieces, then start weaving it back and forth and make a, make a pigtail out of it, we call it, or make a braid down the back of her head. But it's the weaving, in context, is the weaving together, not of one single verse, but the weaving together of all the context, all that was around it, to try to see some pattern, to try to see what the whole was about, not just what created this to begin with. But what is the whole of the matter? And that's, that will be my assignment to try to, to try to take several threads of a life that is unraveling and try to weave the fabric back into its place so we have a better understanding of the pattern that brings about this unraveling of men and women's lives. Some of it will be familiar and hopefully through the weaving it together, you will find yourself or your situation or your circumstances somewhere in the weaving together of these loose threads. An empty horn. Horns are symbolic. They are emblems. They're metaphors. They symbolize power. They symbolize might. They symbolize strength and honor. And, 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 and on the four corners of the of the brazen altar there were horns on all four corners and that's where the blood was applied it was applied to the symbolized fact the metaphor of being powerful and being glorious and being altogether lovely they would put the blood upon the upon the upon the uh, horn typifying the power of the blood you love the power of the blood got to be on the horn, got to be on the power part of the altar. You don't put the blood on the grate, you don't put the blood on the wood, but you put it on the power part of the altar. And it has the power to transform a sacrifice into a substitute. It has the power to send up a fragrance to heaven that covers, that covers and, 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 and sensitizes the nostrils of God to look down and, and see the glory that's being offered there. The blood then was, a, the, the, the altar was a of the altar of incense, then had horns on the four corners. And there again, the blood was applied, but it was typified the very power of praise and what it means. And when you offer up praise to God, it has a powerful influence on God, a powerful influence on heaven to get your things satisfied in your life and get your needs met. And so horns have always been a, a type of power and a type of uh, uh, an emblem of strength and honor, a, a type of might. And uh, these, these horns 
were used also for the carrying of the anointing. They would fill the horn up with the anointing oil and the prophet or priest or judge would carry the horn with him slung over his shoulder perhaps because it talked about the power of anointing and what it meant. And it was not kept in a mason fruit jar, but it was kept in a, a horn because anointing is a powerful thing. It is a glorious thing. It is an anointing thing. And God takes the power of anointing very serious. And if you don't think he takes the power of anointing as serious, when it has been smeared upon something, God recognizes that as being set aside. That is now belongs to me. Now that is my part. That is my parcel. That belongs to me, whether it's man or whether it's beast or whether it's a, an altar or whatever it is, a vessel of God. Uh, he takes it serious when he says that belongs to me now. I, I'm smeared that with anointing and it, it's come out of a horn. It's come out of power. And I take that very serious. If you remember Belshazzar, just a sidebar, Belshazzar, so how serious God takes anointing. Belshazzar had the big feast, you know, and he brought out all the vessels that he had, his father had plundered from the temple, brought them out and began to drink wine and began to praise the glories of, of, of wood and, and, and the, the idols of silver and gold and what have you. And God come down with a hand and wrote on the wall. And he knew he hadn't won the lottery, but he wasn't sure what it said. But he he's pretty sure he wasn't a winner, you know. And he had to get Daniel to come in and, and diagnose the whole thing and break it down, you know. He said, your kingdom's been numbered and finished. So God destroyed Babylon, the greatest seven wonder of the world, over a goblet. Over a goblet, he brought down the greatest kingdom that ever stood. Babylon came down, divided among the Medes and the Persians, because they drank out of a sanctified goblet. They drank out of a God said, you're drinking out of my goblet now. That's had some of my oil. That's been anointed by me. And I will bring down a nation that transgresses that which I have anointed. So God takes the anointing very serious. Sometimes we think it's not all that much and it doesn't mean all that much to us. Perhaps I'm sure it means most of us. But in life, there are a lot of loose threads in our lives that we feel like we need to deal with. And we try to bring back and make something out of them at least. And uh, the Bible says concerning, I think it's important that you understand here's a thread that I want to weave into all this mix that we find up about Samuel. In 1 Samuel 8, 4 to 7, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king and a judge, so we can be like all the other nations. The Bible is very clear when it says that the Lord protected Israel from the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Everything taken from Israel from by the Philistines has now been restored. All the land taken in battle has been restored to the rightful owners. There's a national uh, peace enjoyed by God's people. And it was at this particular time of peace and tranquility that they gathered together with common consent, dismissed the leadership of Samuel saying, you know, you need to give us a king so we can be like everybody else. We're tired of this hoot nanny that you've been putting on. And we need to be like the other nations. We want to be like the heathen nations. We want to be like Gentile nations. We, we want to be like foreign nations. You know, other nations had kings and kingdoms for, for hundreds of years. You know, even, even Esau, he had 
dukes, you know, and here we've got you, and it just does not like, you know, and, and, and Israel felt they were behind, and they're missing out on what other nations were seemingly enjoyed. You know, there were parades and pomp and circumstance and inaugurations, and they were having, these people had a visible king, and we're stuck here with this sick, this sick old mantle-clad prophet, you know. We're weary of old gray-beard mouthpiece of God. We're wore out with dreams and visions from ancients of days. We've had it with your crude, unrefined, rough, uncouth, unpolished prophets like you bunch of Elijahs and Elijahs and Moses and Hoseas. We're done with you kind of mess. And Sammy, you're too unrefined. You're antiquated. You have no sophistication. You're too blunt. You're too primitive. You're an old fossil, just a has-been, used-up rally from the past. The world's moved on, Samuel. Times have changed. There's simply no place for your kind of ministry anymore. You're just way too old school. We're ready for some class. We want a man sitting on a stool with his shirt tail hanging out. We want him drinking a diet Snapple, telling us about the wonders of Vitamixer. We want a visible leadership corresponds to the world around us. We want a procession of power and authority by a monarch. Now, why don't you get out your jitterbug flip phone and, you know, that one with a button down there in case you fall and can't get up. Call up some folks and see if you can't get us some help up in here. Lace up your Dr. Scholl's sandals and get out here on the highways and see if you can find us a king. We're simply tired of being out of step with the world around us. Serving an old invisible king whose representative is old and crude. They give him no go watch. No retirement party. No severance pay. Understand that Samuel had no vocation. But interceding between God and man and man and God. He was not a shepherd like David so he wasn't going to get a flock of sheep. He's not a gatherer of sycamore fruit. He didn't know a sycamore tree from a pine tree. He's not a tent maker like the apostle Paul. He had no marketable skill, no way to make a living. Samuel begins to reflect back on his life in the past. In all the times he had poured his anointing out on Israel. He remembers that couple over there when they were having a marriage problem. He sat down beside them and poured his anointing out on their lives and brought them back together so they could raise their kids as a family. He remembers that as he looked into the eyes. They're saying, you're too old now. He remembers when he went to see their wayward children. The police picked them up after curfew and paid their bail and got them out so they could have a home and go back and sleep in their own beds that night. He wondered about the family disputes when families had got together and they didn't want Uncle John coming to the Christmas party. They were all bent out of shape over it. He sat down with the whole family and put a little oil on them of his anointing and straightened out family problems. How he dealt with the backsliders and depression and anger and frustration and jealousy. He had poured oil on everything, every problem they ever had. He answered their questions and settled their disputes and prayed for them and prayed for their healing. He interceded in their behalf before God when God was ready to mop them up. But he got down on his knees and begged God for their lives. And remember, I'm anointed God. He begged for their lives. He judged what was right and wrong to gain favor with God. And he taught it to the people. 
For some 60 years, he had unreservedly poured himself out in his love for God's people. And now he's being rejected. And it was a bitter blow of words because he did not see it coming. There's no failure in his life. There's no mistakes in his ministry. There's no error in his judgments. There's no accusation of misconduct. His only crime was he'd just gotten old. Just gotten old. And they knew it's just time for change. Eli had kind of started the ball rolling. Because he said, God said to him, since you prefer your sons over me, there will never be an old man in your house. Uh, Some churches think they'd be cursed if they didn't have a lot of young people. But God said, I'll curse your house, Eli, so you never have an old man in your house. It's a privilege to get to grow old in the house of God. God has to grant you that privilege for it to happen. I'm not saying we don't need young people. I'm just saying, he said, there'll never be a counselor in your house. There'll never be an example in your house. There'll never be a warrior in your house with any experience. There'll never be anything in your house. I'll let a young man get up to a bud, then I'll kill him. Never be an old man in your house, sir. And so Israel had gotten used to not having an old man in their house. And this pill of rejection was made even bitter when they brought up his sons. And they said, thy sons walk not in thy ways. (laughs) Samuel, no doubt, I think, because he was a great man of God. He was a godly father. He poured himself into his sons. He shared his anointing with those who called him dad. He taught and instructed and counseled and advised and admonished, guided his boys. Gave them direction as to how to walk and listen to God. No doubt, like our children, sometimes they played temple. You know, like our kids played church. You ever played church? Somebody gets to preach, you know, and somebody gets to hold the Bible and make your congregation up with the girls. And and now and then, want to break rank and want to preach. And please, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. Anyway, anyway. They pour their oil out, you know, and maybe dad got them a little goat horn, you know, to wear around their neck and just some symbol thing so they could play with it, you know, and got them a little sensor, tin can, sardine can, put a couple of rocks in it so they could act like they had a sensor, you know. You know how kids are. They want to they play temple, play church, you know. I, I've seen dad do it. This is how dad does it, you know. He swings that sensor back and forth, you know, and, and I can hear the incense rattling around in there, you know, a little pea gravel in there, you know. I got my horn, you know, and I got no oil in it. I don't know what my dad would have put Vic Sav in it. He thought that was right next to chemotherapy anyway. So anyway, he, if Vic Sav couldn't cure it, you was dying anyway. So it didn't make no difference what you had. Our medicine cabinet only had three things in it. It wasn't like our medicine cabinet today. It had mercurochrome, methylate. It's both about the same 99.9% alcohol. You pour that in a woman, buddy, it'd, it'd make you forget you've got a cut. Then Vic Sav... Big Sab, but it was right, I mean, it was right up there. With, 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 I mean, it was the highest you could get. I mean, they put it on everything. You, you put that on your throat, tie a white sock around it. If you didn't get well, 
You're gone anyway, you know. Yeah, it's no sound. We ain't wasting no more money on you, you know. It vexed that. We had one of them jars. It was like an industrial jar. I mean, like, a, like for a nursing home. It was a huge jar, you know, because, man, we used some Vic Sav. Man, I went to bed smelling like Vicks every night of my life nearly, you know. If you got a white sock and Vicks Sav, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And if it's not an open wound, you know, them methylate bottles had a little, a little glass wand in them. You could take that glass wand out, you know, and my dad was bad with that stuff, man. He, he, you'd be red all over and running it all over, you know, and you'd burn like fire. You'd forget what you was wrong with you with that kind of stuff on there, you know. And put a little dog big sap on there just in case. <laughs> you know. So I'm sure he they followed his dad, you know, and they played temple and got him a little goat horn and a little tin can full of censers, you know. And he mentored his sons in the known commandments and laws of God. And he acquainted these boys with blessings of obedience and the curses of rebellion. They watched their father's dedication and commitment to God. As children, they walked and, and played like their dad. And they were saturated and marinated in ministry. Sammy remembers how he poured himself out his anointing into those boys. And as with every minister, I suspect... And every parent, it's their hope that one of their children would at least follow and pick up the burden of the mantle. At least maybe one of these boys would certainly, after I poured myself into them, at least one of them surely would decide they wanted to follow in my footsteps. Well, the Bible says in Isaiah 9 and 6, for unto us a child is born. That's just a natural biological process. Nothing supernatural about that. It's just an ordinary course of nature. A child is just brought into existence. But unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. A son is a gift. To the Old Testament father, a son was a gift because it ensured him that his name would go on, his bloodline would succeed. He would live on in his sons. he live on in them. And so a son was a gift from God. Something had been granted. Something had been presented as a present. He's been awarded. He's had his wish fulfilled. For God has given him not one son, but two sons. The Bible said his sons walk not in his ways. But turned aside after lucre, it took bribes and perverted judgment. These sons, these two boys were money hungry. They sold themselves to the highest bidders of the land. There was no concern for truth or justice or righteousness. They did not follow the footsteps of their father Samuel. They were whirling, consumed with gain and personal gain. No spiritual values, no heart for God, no passion for his word, no respect for his laws or commandments. They were self-consumed and self-absorbed and self-centered and selfish. They were not even a shadow of their father Samuel. Unworthy of being called his sons. And they walked not in his ways. That is, they knew the way. They just chose not to walk in it. They were not ignorant of the way because they had been raised and born and tutored in it. They just chose not to walk in that way. There's a difference in not knowing the way and then willingly choosing not to walk in that way. And these two boys had a better beginning and opportunity and knew and had experienced and watched, but they chose not to walk in that way. They were seduced and deceived by the world. Love of money and prestige had blinded their eyes. They surrendered to the gods of this world, and the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh and pride of life. And it was a sad commentary 
Because the implication to Israel was of him, you are old and your sons don't even want to follow you. And your sons have rejected your ministry. And your sons have turned their back on your ways and have walked away. So you tell me why we should follow you when you couldn't even keep your own gifts. Your sons turned their back on you. Samuel, why should we follow you when you couldn't even keep your own family? Could almost see Samuel as he releases the tears of liquid pain and thinking of sons who have poured back everything he had poured out on them. It is a crushing blow to the heart to have children not want to walk in your ways. Moses' mother had hid him. That's what the Bible said. She hid Moses. She protected him. She kept him out of sight. She concealed him because it was a death march going through Egypt's land. He was unknown to others. She kept him in secret. She, she never wanted him to be damaged. She exposed him to no risk, no danger. She, he was not subject to difficulties. She defended him from all troubles. She, she kept him back from harm and all attacks. She prevented him and gave him and provided for him everything that was good for him. But she kept Moses safe. She was like a bodyguard for him. She was his human sanctuary. No drugs, no alcohol, no tobacco, no porno. She kept him hid from all of that. But the Bible is very clear in Exodus 2 and 3. It said, and when she could no longer hide him because you can listen to me clearly and closely there will come a time in your life that you will no longer be able to hide your children oh you can hide them for a while and you can preserve them for a while and you'll have a voice in their lives for a while but there will come a day when you will no longer be able to hide them no longer will we be able to protect them. No longer will you be able to shelter them from the wiles of the devil. But you will launch them out into a river that's full of crocodiles. You cannot cover them from the world forever. You cannot conceal and preserve them from danger forever. You cannot secure them and guard them from temptation forever. You cannot secure them. You cannot keep them from peer pressure forever. There will be a while you can choose their friends. But there will come a day when you can't hide them from bad friends. It will be their choice and they will pick them out. There will come a time when you'll not be able to insure them from loss and trials and tests. You will not be able to, you'll not be able to shield them and defend them against threats and dangers and attacks. But there will come a time, my friend, when you can no longer hide them. They must make now their own choices. They must come to their own decisions. They must stand at the crossroads and choose a direction for their lives, and they will not ask you for any help. There will come options and possibilities offered them of which you will have no say. 
They must decide, determine, settle, and cast their own vote as to how they're going to live their lives. For you will not be able to hide them forever. And it's a sad day when you realize that your children can no longer be hid from the temptations and snares of the world. You hope you put enough in them that they're capable of making a good choice. Whether they make it or not will be up to them, but you know they're capable of it. But some choose not to walk in those ways. Samuel pours him out on his sons, and they do not want him. From childhood to old age, since his mama dropped him off after he was weaned, he's poured himself into Israel. And now they do not want him. The only people he has ever loved have expressed their opinions very clearly. We do not want you. It is now official. Samuel is a two-time loser with nothing to show for 60 years. But sons who do not want him and a nation he has lived and died for that do not want him. It is in this climate of rejection that steps a young man named Saul. Samuel, the prophet of God, had met Saul for the first time. He's a young, unpretentious boy who was seeking his lost donkeys of his father's. But heaven orchestrated the event and the meeting. Samuel saw from the beginning the potential of greatness that was in resident of this young man. In the eyes of the people, Saul would be the old mantle-clad prophet's replacement. I may not have sons, but I, I've got this boy right here. He had all the markings for greatness. He, he's loaded with potential. His future was bright. He's destined for the throne of Israel. He would become the measuring stick for all future kings. The Bible says, Samuel said, I ain't going to risk a whole horn. I'm just going to get out of vile. Because I already used it up on Israel and they didn't want me. I wrung it out for my kids and they didn't want me. So I've got a little sample here. I've got a little vial here. Because I don't want to risk a whole horn on the boy. So I've got a little vial of oil here. A little sampling of the oil here. A little small container of it here. Just a portion of it here. And he took that vial of oil and he poured it upon the head of Saul and he kissed him and he become the anointed king of Israel he reminded Saul he said before you leave me Saul before you depart from me this day I want you to go down by Rachel's sepulcher just send you by the graveyard it's over there in the tribe of the Benjamites because you remember Saul was a Benjamite. So I said, I'll send you to the cemetery of the Benjamites. He said, while you're there, look at the headstones. Go by Rachel's. Because I want you to see something. Here is the woman that gave birth to you and died doing it. She died giving birth to Benjamin. I want you to know, Saul, you didn't get here by yourself. 
But your, your vine is growing out of the fruitful heart of that which gave its life to give birth to you. Go by Rachel Seven, because men will lie to you. Silver-tongued orders will lie to you. But the dead don't lie. They tell you the truth. They won't lie to you. They will tell you the truth. You got here because I died giving birth to you. I give birth to your tribe. I give, you wouldn't be a you had it not been for me. Every young man needs to go by Rachel's sepulcher and understand you didn't get here by yourself. But somebody died giving birth to you. And the only reason you have life is it grew out of the fertile soil of another man's sacrifice that gave you the privilege of being here. Now I put oil on your head. But before you get on the throne and before you sway the scepter and before you commission a crown to be made for you, head go by the cemetery and look at the people that died giving birth to you come to appreciate the privilege you have of being anointed of God Samuel's so proud of Saul it's almost like a father's son Samuel's own flesh and blood sons had shown little promise it seems to me that the aged Samuel was living out the remainder of his life in the life and times of Saul. You know, parents and grandparents do that, you know. It's a vicarious life. Performed by one person in substitute of another. It's done to the benefit or advantage of another. You know, he's now old. He's not only lost a step, he's lost a flight. But he sees, Sam, he sees Saul and Saul is... Full of vim and vigor, head and shoulders, you know. It's like a grandfather looking at his grandson play ball, you know. You couldn't run, you can't even run the mailbox, much less run the first base, you know. And, but he watched his grandson go around, you know. It's a vicarious thing. I'm running around that base in my grandson, you know, and in my boy. And you see them, you know, you see them when they do great and they hit a basket, man, they're on their feet. There's no more, more cheerleader than to have your papa, have your dad there, your papa there, or grandma there. I mean, I even like basketball. I mean, I don't even like baseball. I mean, I like anything. I don't if you hit a hockey puck and it, it knocks the tooth out, they're going to brag on you and boast on you. And they're going to, they're going to, they're going to, they're no matter what, you know, your kids can't do it. I mean, it's a vicarious life. You live your life through your children. You make videos of them and you show it. You laugh and want everybody to see it. You know, and you want everybody to look at the video of it. And you got pictures of pull them out like that. I said, uh, Brother Jeff Arnold had a necktie on, had all of his, all of his grandkids' pictures on his necktie. Like we was really interested in all that, you know. We really wanted to see, we really wanted to see his grandchildren, you know. But he's got, he didn't button his coat up. He had his button open like this, walking around like he was all that, you know. Got them grandkids flashing on front of him, telling everybody this is, this is Fred, and this is, yeah, I'm bragging on you, little man. Ain't nothing wrong because it's vicarious. You living, they're living their life, but it benefits you. So you live your life through it, you know. When they do good, man, when they bring a trophy home, even if it's just a participation trophy. Man, you put that thing, get a pedestal for it, set it up there, you know. They give them participation trophies now because it hurts your feelings if you lose. God knows we wouldn't want your feelings to get hurt. My dad would hurt your feelings. I can tell you that. He'd hurt your feelings. He believed in timeout. He'd take timeout to whip you. That's what he'd do. Wasn't no timeout. Wasn't no timeout like... Then he put some big salve on it to make you feel better than a little mercure chrome, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't take medicine. I couldn't take no medicine. 
I couldn't swallow a pill. My mother would take an aspirin and put it in a spoon, you know, dissolve it. That was a horrible way to take it. I couldn't swallow it, you know. And they finally come out with them pills. This is back when the world was young. They had them pills that come out, had a coating on them where you wouldn't dissolve, you know. I bought all pills all the day. And my mother said, you got to take this pill. And, 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 and I said, I can't take it, Mama. I said, I put it in my mouth, I started gagging all that, you know. So I drank some water. I drank a gallon of water, you know. I had to go to the bathroom for 30 minutes after I tried to take a pill, you know. Drinking water, drinking water, drinking water, drinking water, drinking water, you know. And an open mouth pill still laying there, you know. I said, I can't swallow it. I can't swallow it. And she said, well, you've got to take your medicine. I said, I'll chew it up. I'll chew it up. I bit into that thing, and the taste is still in my mouth. I was like seven years old. It tastes like it was the most horrible tasting thing I ever knew. She said, you're going to tell you, you have to tell your dad. You can't take, you know, take any medicine. So I had these bunk beds, and I was on the top bunk. I had a sister down here. I was on the top bunk. It had a, half of a wagon wheel on one end, half a wagon wheel on the other end. There's a wall on that side and a bar that went across this side. I keep him falling. Now, you've probably seen them. I think they still sell them. I was laying up there real quiet, and I heard the door open up. Open door my, and my dad came in, and my mom said, Joe, that's my dad's name. He said, he won't take his medicine. And I heard his belt unsheath. And he run a service station. This belt had been soaked in used motor oil for 30 years. I mean, it left, it not only left red places, it left black marks on your body. And it was all gnarly looking. It had wrinkles all in. It was thing looked like a black snake. It was that long. It looked like you know. So he come in my come in my my my, my bedroom, and he said, "You got to take your medicine." I said, "I can't swallow it." He held that belt up. He said, "I'm gonna whip you." Now I was sick. I didn't have no effect. I'm talking about the talking about the big save man here, wasn't it? He said, "I'm gonna whip you if you don't take it." And you know what I said? Whip on. And he was as good as his word. To whackity, 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 whackity. There was no place to go. The wall on this side, hip, wagon wheels on both ends, bar on this side. I was running around like a, I was, it was, I was shooting fish in a barrel, man. There was no place to whackity, 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 whackity. Oh, time out. Give me one more chance. He put that pill, I could have swallowed a tennis ball, man. If he put that thing, to get him to stop, I could have swallowed anything, man. Put it in my mouth. I'll send it down. I'll hit the dump button on that bad thing. I'll, I'll send it. I, I, I take five pills in the morning. I just put them all five in my mouth because I can see that belt coming in behind me there, you know. I just put it in my mouth and send it on down. We live our lives vicariously. In our sons and daughters and our grandkids, they do good, we do good. They hit a home run. Man, that's my boy. We take pictures of them, stop action pictures. Got them hanging all over your refrigerator. Your kid can't even color in the lines. You got it hanging up on the refrigerator. I'll give us something. Got scrawl marks all over it, you know. Yellow, green, got a blue, you got a blue sun up there, and you think it's the most beautiful architectural design that's ever been 
He's going to be a Michelangelo or somebody. He's going to be a, he's going to be, he made a little, in VBS, he makes a little something here. It's all cockeyed and the handle's crooked on it, you know. You hang it on the Christmas tree like it was a centerpiece of all, you know. Because this vicarious, that's my boy made that right there, you know. So my boy, it's ugly as 30 miles of rough road, but you think it's the most beautiful thing that ever was made, you know. And so you hang it on the Christmas tree because it's a vicarious life. It's great to have kids to live your life through. It's great to have grandkids to live your life through. Saul has now become the vicarious attribute of Samuel. So he pours himself into his student. He teaches, instructs, and mentors. Saul becomes his reason for living. You know, when you're about ready to give up, you need a reason to get up. He need a reason to go on. You know, he's his reason now. Because Israel don't want him. His boys don't want him. So now here's a boy that needs him. And so he pours himself into him. Because it's exciting to teach others. Watch him grow and develop on your tutoring. Saul becomes Samuel's reason. Reason to get up in the morning. Reason to hope for tomorrow. Reason to live and dream for better days. And when Saul failed, Samuel's life had become so entwined and interwoven with Saul's. That his heart was broken. He's emotionally distraught. He's miserable. It's almost more than he could bear to think that God had repented of ever making him king. You understand, Samuel had poured himself into Israel, and they didn't want him. He pours himself into his two sons, and they don't want him. So now he's poured himself into Saul, and now God doesn't want him. Samuel and Saul say their goodbyes. See you later, son. Take care of my father. I don't know if either of them were aware that Samuel would come no more to see Saul until the day of his death. It was just over. What had begun with such high hopes and dreams and now had been eternally shipwrecked on the rocks of disobedience and pride. Samuel mourned and lamented for Saul like a widow over the death of her only son. Because it's now official. There's nobody on planet earth that wants Samuel. Nobody. Because everything he touches, everything he pours himself out on, pours it back on him, saying, I don't want it. When he finally gets what he thinks is God's will, he pours himself into that. And after he makes it everything he can make it, then God says, I don't want it. I don't want it. And he goes into a mourning. As he watches Saul going about his life unrepentant. But he's seen that before in his own sons. They just go on with life and never repent. He's unstirred. He acts like nothing has happened. He doesn't even realize what he's done to Samuel. Samuel is asked the question of questions. The Lord said unto him, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel? How long, Samuel? 
Will you live a vicarious life through people who do not want you? How long will you live a vicarious life? It's okay to live your life vicariously through your children when they're hitting home runs and they're making the scale and they're making their grades are high and you've got a bumper sticker saying, my kid's on the honor roll. It's great to live vicariously through them. But what do you do when they fail? Do you still live your life? Do you allow their lives to impact your life to such an extent that you can't function? Somewhere in your life, you have to stop living a vicarious life through the failure of others. You cannot live forever vicariously through the failure of a nation or through the failure of your children or through the failure of someone that you've mentored because that will destroy your life. He will send you into a depression and a hopelessness that it's very hard to dig your way out of. When it looks like everything you've touched and taught and everything you poured yourself into now does not want you any longer. And your greatest sin is you've just gotten old. How long? Tell me, Samuel. Tell me how long. Set a date when this will be over. I just need to know, Samuel, how long will it take you to stop living a vicarious life to the failure of Israel, to the failure of his sons, and to the rebellion of Saul? How long will it take you to stop living your life through their failures? How long will you sorrow over someone else's rebellion? 40 days for Jacob, 30 days for Aaron, 30 days for Moses. Just tell me, when will it be over? Saul has been rejected, Samuel. In all the wailing, in all the crying, in all the tears, cannot undo what has been done. My decision is final. And your sorrow for it will not rewrite the history of it. The failure of her sons or the rebellion of Saul cannot be undone right now. You have to know Samuel is a broken man and God knows it. And Samuel's horn is absolutely empty. He has poured it out on everybody he ever loved. He got down to a vial for the last man. He has shook out the last drop to get enough to put on his last hope. And now God says, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. Samuel has joined the walking dead, living a vicarious life to a nation that didn't want him and to sons who would not walk in his way. Into a boy that had all the promise in the world, but rebelled, and now God didn't want him. Let me give you a practical example, and I'll come down the stretch of the horn from the Spanish bullfights. All the bulls used in, in the bullfights 
originated from five breeds whose bloodline is traced back to the 17th century. It is called a royal herd. It is very selective breeding with distinctive characteristics. They're bred for great size and long, flexible necks and muscle mass. They're bred because they have large rough hoofs and fine hair, well-developed heads and horns, great height all the way from their withers to their hooves. But it's much more than physical appearance and visual appeal. This royal animal must have innate bravery. He must have enthusiasm and courage and a temperament of nobility. He has great stamina, a will to fight and spirit to win. This defines the inward nature and character of a bull of this royal herd not visible to the eye. But the horns, the horns are the focus of all that the bull is and has. All of his strength and all of his power and all of his might, every muscle, his bravery, his courage, his stamina, his spirit and will are all focused upon his horns. Everything in his royal body, every fiber, every sinew converges and is concentrated on his horns. All the above fill his horns with power and strength to fight. He's a formidable foe. But could I tell you this afternoon, you need to know this. It will not be a fair fight. There's not a matador in town that could take a bull head on. First of all, he has to be weakened. He has to be weakened. There will be three matadors. The third and last matador never enters the ring until the bull has been weakened. Because days before he's ever to enter the ring, his ears are stuffed with wet newspapers to block his hearing and destabilize him. Vaseline is rubbed into his eyes to blur his vision. He's kept in the dark for a couple of days to disorient him. Then he released, he runs to the light at the end of the tunnel, not knowing he's running to his death. This royal bull has been weakened and destroyed mentally. Then the picadors come out on horseback. They've got lances. Their horses are, are, have blindfolds on them. They have long spears in their hands. They come and gone as the bull charges with his mighty horns and power. They run the spear into his neck, not into his side, not into his gut, not into his hand, but not, he run it into his neck because they want to cut the neck muscles. They plunge it in and twist it, rear it up in their stirrups and run it into his neck. And time and time again, the picadors come by and run into his neck and cut the neck muscles. He's bleeding, beat up, blood splattered, but they're not done. Then enters the ring, the second matador. He has at least 16 banderillos. Sharp darts that are going to be thrust again into his neck to further weaken and bleed the bull. They throw him in. There are barbs on the end so they will not come out. They're top heavy so they swing back and forth cutting again the muscles in his neck. It's not a fair fight. He's bleeding. He's wounded and bruised. Through all the bloodletting of the battle. Slowly but surely. The powerful, brave bull 
is drained of all of his bravery and enthusiasm and stamina and courage and his will to fight. The whole process is called the emptying of the horns. They never take them off. They just empty them out. Because they want him to look like a bull. They want him to have the image of a fighter. They want him to have the nature and characteristics of a fighter. But the fight is not fair. Because now all the bravery has been drained out of his horns. All the royalty appearance has been drained out of his horns. Now then, they're empty. So the final matador walks out like he's all that, you know. The tenor mentioned like a sissy boy. He's got them tight pant britches on him. Sequins all over him and everything. So the lights flash on him. He really looks like something, you know. I'll fight the bull. Yeah, you'll fight him when his horns are empty. Yeah, because this ain't a fair fight, you understand. They're not emptied all at once. It's little by little by little by little by little. All the other that precedes the fight. Their design is to empty you down to where you're easy pickings. And when the devil has got your horns empty... Then he steps into the ring like he was all that. He gets his little little thing out to get you to charge. And every time you charge, your head gets lower because your neck muscles have already been cut. Your horns are now empty. Even though you still got them, you can't raise them. All that matador is looking for is for you to bow your head and look at him in the eye. And say it is over. I cannot lift my head because my horns are empty. You have worn me out with your darts. You've worn me out with your picks. You've worn me out with your spears. You've worn me out with all of your facade here. Like you were going to fight me a fair fight. But now that my horns are empty. He lowers his head. Because you've cut his neck muscles. To the point that he can rear no longer. The matador pulls his spear out from behind his cape. Points it at his neck. He lowers his head in submission. He runs it through his neck, through his heart. And he falls like a stick of stove wood to the ground. They never take his horns off. Even when they drag him out of the arena. He's still got his horns. They're just empty. It's a sad commentary on royalty that the horns have been emptied. Let me say to you today, it reminds me of so much of Samuel. Because there's not one thing. It's not one thing that empties your horn. It's the combination of things. It's the fiery darts of the devil that land in your neck. It's the spears that are thrown into you. It's all the chargings that you've made. You tried to fight. You tried to buckle against it. You tried to come up against it. You tried to do your very best. But your head gets lower. And it gets lower. And it gets lower. And it gets lower. Do you say, I wish somebody would just put me out of my misery. I am a bloody mess. I don't know what to do. And the devil's got you where you want you. Let me say to you this afternoon. Let me say, don't you dare bow your head. Don't you dare bow your head. Don't you dare bow your head. But the Bible said, lift up your head and lift up your hands and lift up your voice. Hallelujah. That's the only way the devil knows. My horns are not quite empty yet. My horns are not empty yet. I know you beat me up pretty bad. Go ahead and stand with me. I know you beat me up pretty bad. 
And I know sometimes he's rubbed Vaseline in your eyes and you can't see good anymore. I know he's stopped up your ears to where you can't hear the voice of God anymore. Hallelujah. I know he's put cotton up in your nose so you can't breathe good anymore. Because this is not a fair fight, sir. This is not a fair fight. This is that ugly a fight as you will ever see a demonstration of. Because that bull has been dismantled before he ever enters the ring. Go ahead and stand with me. He has been mentally destroyed before he is physically destroyed. And his horns are always left intact. They're just emptied out to where there's nothing left. But you're a royal priesthood. You're a royal herd. Hallelujah. God has brought you to the kingdom to be OTT 2017 for just such a time as this. For God says to Samuel, you need to go down to the cellar. You need to go down to the cellar. Let's talk to Joash. Tell him, ask if he's got any fresh oil. Because you need to get some oil. He said, I want you to fill your horn with oil. I know. I know the matadors have done you in. I know Saul didn't want you. I know Israel didn't want you. I know your sons didn't want you. But God says, Samuel, I still want you. And I need you. Because there's one more job you got to do. There's one more job on your resume you need to take care of. Your successor is waiting on the other side of the hill over there. But you can't go with an empty horn. How long will you mourn over that which you can't fix? How long will you live vicariously through a nation that didn't appreciate you? Because you know sometimes churches empty your horn. Empty your horn. Sometimes families empty your horn. Marriages empty your horn. God knows kids can empty your horn. God knows that. I've got a little girl. She's 18 years old. She put a backpack on her. Her mom sent her off to school. I didn't even get up. It was Monday morning. She had led the children's choir on the praise team. Just another day. Went to school. That was eight years ago. Eight years ago. We never saw her again. Every Christmas card, Father's Day's come and go, Mother's Day's come and go. Nothing, not a word, not a text message, not a phone call. There's another daughter standing right there. Raise your hand up, Kelly. Not a godlier, precious young lady on planet Earth. Both raised together. Same food, same table. My wife fills out Christmas cards for eight years. Birthday cards for eight years. 
puts money in them, writes checks. Easter cards, Valentine cards, they're all just laying there. We just don't have no address. So don't talk to me about empty horns. It ain't a fair fight. The playing field's not level, by the way. The only way the devil's fair is that he's unfair to everyone. That's how fair he is. I'll be unfair to all of you. You've heard it today. We all have our burdens that tend to empty our horns. But I'll tell you what I cannot do. I cannot live a vicarious life for a daughter I don't know where she is. That will kill you. It will kill you. It will flat kill you. Though somebody ever actually tells you that, they must wonder if you couldn't save your own children. What makes you think you could save mine? Just empty it out. Get it over with. Enter into my rest, saith the Lord. Enter into my yoke. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will find a salve for your soul. You will find my blood into that yoke. Enter into my yoke and I will show you a part of my heart for a dying lost world. Enter into that yoke and you will find the purpose of my love. Enter into that yoke and you will see the rest that I have called you to. Just lift your hands and love the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Samuel had no idea. The music could come. Samuel had no idea that all biblical history has come to a halt while he mourns. That's why God wants to know how long. Because the Bible said when Samuel died, David arose. There's a death and there's always a resurrection. When Samuel died, David arose. So God is pushing back biblical history. Hold everything. How long, Saul? How long? How, how long, Samuel? Another day? Another week? How, how long? I'm trying to hold back. I'm holding him back. He's writing psalms and saying them to sheep. He's writing poetry and quoting it to sheep. I can only keep him here so long. I've got to hold history back. Because without David, there are giants that need to be killed. 
There are lions and bears that are devouring the flocks. The ark needs to get back to Jerusalem. But there is no Jerusalem until David gets here. I need a place to put my name. And I can't place my name. I'm holding it all back for you, Samuel. When will you get some oil back in your horns? I can't hold it back forever. Because without David, there cannot be a son of David. And without a son of David, there's no savior for the world. I'm holding it all back. So, Samuel, how long? How long will you wait? Living vicariously through the failures of others. Cannot hold it back forever. I need you to get some oil in your horn and get over to Bethlehem as quick as you can. Because I need to let history march forward. I don't know how many. We can't have an upper room yet. If Pentecost cannot fully come, Samuel, until you fill your horn with oil. And get over and pour it on a young man's head. Because you will have a successor. And when you die, he will arise. And I will let history march on. I'll let history march on. I don't know where you are tonight in your life. I don't know where your horns are. You may still wear them. Because you can wear them and look like you're all that. Yeah, you can wear it around your neck. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Just like, just like Samuel, nobody knows. How you doing today? I'm doing great. I said, everything is wonderful. You, know? you take a peek inside the horn. It's as dusty as a desert. Because the spears and shackles of sin has drained it all out. Over nations, over churches, over families, over loved ones that you poured yourself into. It's crushing spirit. It's a crushing spirit. To know the church that you poured yourself into is actually like they didn't need you any longer. It's a crushing blow for kids to act like they don't want to walk in your ways. But you could be holding back history because God has something for you, sir. There's a generation that needs your anointing. There's a generation that needs some oil out of your life. They're going to need a headstone to walk by and know they didn't get here by themselves. There's somebody that died giving birth to me. They desperately need your ministry. We're going to come down. I don't know what you want to do. If you've got children away from God, we've already prayed. You've got prodigals, you know that. Nothing shall be called impossible to them that believe. But there are ministries that are wearing the horns. But like the bull in the arena, they have been emptied. Not all at once. Not all at once. It's just drip by drip by drip by drip. It empties your horns out. If you feel that emptiness in your heart, it won't be for everybody. I want you to step out and come down, Samuel. Come on down because there's some fresh oil right here. 2000. That's why God has sent you here for some fresh oil. This is Joash's. This is Joash's cellar right here. He's got. He's got. He's got cases of oil. Uh, he's got everything that you need to be able to get history to roll on. History's going to roll on in your life. You're holding back what God wants to do in your life. 
there are there are there are davids all over the country that are waiting for some man to get some oil in his life so he can anoint him with something this is not about a vial of oil this is about a horn of a fill thy horn with oil fill it up 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 I can't promise you that everything's gonna work out all right I can't promise you that everything's going to be okay. All I can tell you is, Samuel, it's time to awaken again. It's time for you to wake up. Wake up, Samuel. You have a ministry. You have a life. You just need some oil. You need some anointing in your life. It's for you and for a generation that's counting on you. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Pray for somebody in this final closing morning session. You've heard some of the great men of God. You've listened to their testimonies. I say, God, put some oil back in my horn. You haven't been treated fairly. You haven't been treated justly. I understand it's not a fair fight. People will not be fair. You may not have gotten justice. I understand. It doesn't happen to you. It's always someone else. And don't you dare look down your nose at someone whose horns are empty. Because it may be very well that the darts may come your way tomorrow. The spear may be plunged in your neck muscles tomorrow. You may find yourself when your ministry's been drained out of your life and your history has been put on hold because you can't get over the morning of the past. There's a generation waiting for you, sir. A generation is waiting for you. It's wrapped up in a young man. So get over the morning. It ain't going to change Saul. May not change your sons. I don't know about eternity. May not change Israel. But something has to change you. You just need oil. You just need oil. You just need oil. Not just for yourself. But for a generation that's waiting for you. For a ministry that without you is hamstrung. And Goliath is defying the gods of Israel. And there's 10,000 Philistines that need to feel the cold steel of David's sword. And yet you're in mourning. God needs you. He wants you. You have ministry. Do not live vicariously through other people's failures. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, Samuel. Come on, Samuel. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right, Samuel. We're going to get it done. You've listened to these preachers. 
You listen to these great men of God. They've had their problem. What if they'd given up? What if they lived their last lives mourning over what could have been, should have been, ought to have been? They got some fresh oil in their horns. They anointed you, Brother Mangan, Brother Woodward, all these great men. Brother Shock, Sister Vestas Mangan, Brother Stewart, Brother Williams, that great panel, Brother Sister Lumpkin. Oh, yeah, they're still here. They're still here to come to anoint you. They're still here. Because you can't live your life in mourning. Somehow you've got to get some oil back in your back in your horn. You can carry around the horn and act like it. But you need to stay away from Bethlehem. But David's going to need more than a symbol. More than a metaphor. He's going to need some oil in his life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Would you lay your hands on somebody and just pray for them again? Some of you young men need to go to Rachel's sepulcher. Realize somebody died giving birth to you. Died giving birth to you. I know, pastor's wife, it's not fair that you should have to suffer. I know young evangelist life, it's not fair that you have to suffer. I get it. I understand missionary, life is not fair. I understand. The playing field is not level. It's all against you. To defeat you and bring you down. Little by little by little by little. It drains your horns. Till you have no power. And you bow your head. Say, don't bow your head. Lift up your head. Everybody right now, lift up your head. Lift up your hands. And lift up your voice. I still got some oil in my horns. Put away your spear. I'm not finished. I'm not done. It's not over. It's not over till God says it's over. Still got some oil. Go ahead, history. March on. March on, history. Come on, David. Come on, son of David. Thank you, Jesus.